The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll ask the question, will Trump's generals save us from his impulsiveness, aggression, and ignorance? We'll ask John Nichols. And we'll also talk about the nation's special food issue. It's out now. It's not about the hot new restaurants and the foodie trends. Instead, it asks the question, how can we get to a more equitable and sustainable food system? Zoe Carpenter will explain. She was one of the editors of the issue. One more thing. It also includes some cocktail recipes, because these days, the news goes best with a stiff drink. First up today, women say me too. After the news about Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein's harassment and sexual assaults on women, social media users around the world have proclaimed a simple idea that sexual abuse is a common experience in women's lives. With the Twitter hashtag MeToo, they've been telling their stories and acting against the culture of silence around sexual assault. For comment, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's the nation's national affairs correspondent. Last time she was on the show, she brought in clips from her conversation with Hillary Clinton about what happened. We reached her today in New York City. Joan, welcome back. Happy to be here, John. Well, the hashtag MeToo has been used more than half a million times, at least in the first 24 hours. That seems like a lot. What did you think about the Me Too stories of sexual abuse and sexual harassment? I think it's incredibly important. I, I really do think uh, that more than the Access Hollywood video did last year featuring Donald Trump bragging about sexual assault, this is really engaging more women more viscerally. I'm not going to predict anything about a change in our culture, but I think change often starts with, with revelation. And I think even women are surprised by the the number of people uh, and the the kind of people. When you're on Facebook and you're scrolling down, yesterday morning, pretty much every one of the posts that I was seeing was a Me Too. And you're seeing your cousins and your high school friends and your you know people you worked with, college friends, all of them chiming in. And you realize it, it helps everybody realize well. I'm not alone. It triggered me to actually write a piece about it, about my own experiences, because I think a lot of us have been have been kind of gaslit into thinking either it was our fault or it didn't matter. And having women put words to the specific kinds of things that happen that aren't aren't. I mean, some of the people, some of the women are talking about rape, so I don't want to minimize it. But it also just made me think about how much time we spend fending off bad behavior by men and what would happen if we all didn't have to do that and we devoted that time to our communities or our families or our, our art or our political activism. I don't know why, but the Me Too outpouring hit me viscerally with that question. And do you want to say anything here about your own uh, Me Too experiences? Well, sure. I wrote about them. Uh, and, you know, as I said in the piece, they're not, at, they're not at the level of the Weinstein revelations, certainly. But they're at the level of, especially when you're a young woman coming up, starting out, getting some professional attention from an older, you know, more accomplished man, and being pursued, you think, for your 
work, you know, let's have a working lunch. And then you realize, no, that's not really what it's about. And, you know, you're being pursued for something else. And uh, actually, it was Gia Tolentino in The New Yorker. She borrowed the the experience of uh, the actress Aja Argento, who described her kind of bait and switch relationship with Harvey Weinstein and said, I felt like a fucking fool. And, you know, Gia recounted some of her experiences and said that's, yeah, Asia really summed it up well. Uh, And I, I felt that viscerally. Earlier in your career, you worked as a boss. You you hired women. I wonder if you have any second thoughts about that. Oh, I I absolutely do. I think uh, the Me Too's and the Gia Tolentino piece, and then just reaching out and talking to some of the the women that I hired at, at several different workplaces. You know, I was a manager for a good part of my life. Didn't have the great freedom that I now have at the nation where I supervise my dog, and I'm very nice to her. But talking to them, I realized that a lot of things that we collectively kind of shrugged off or laughed off or thought were gross but got together and talked about, I was actually their superior. I was actually in a position to have done more about it. And because of the culture of the time, some of these were a long time ago, some weren't that long ago, because of the culture of journalism where you're really expected, it's it's a cursing, drinking, dark humor kind of culture. Some of the dark humor is, is sexist and you find yourself wanting to be the proverbial cool girl and go along with it. I did that. I think some of these young women did that, but I was in more of a position to have protected them. And that bothered me. You know, it just really bothered me that I didn't, that I didn't do more, but I think it's because I hadn't seen my own experiences earlier in my career as being degrading and demeaning and, and, and somehow avoidable, maybe not avoidable back then, maybe not in, the, not, not in the moment, but certainly worthy of the kind of attention that we're paying all of this now. The New York Times said this may be a watershed moment. I have to say, I thought the watershed moment came, you know, a year ago during the campaign when the Access Hollywood tape came out with Trump bragging about pussy grabbing. I thought, now he'll never be elected. Uh, You probably remember that, too. Oh, my God. You know, I'm on Facebook with reservations, but, you know, I'm on Facebook. And Facebook has a relatively new feature in the last year or two called Facebook Memories. So every day you are confronted with something that you posted exactly a year ago. And it's heartbreaking because exactly a year ago was the Access Hollywood tape, uh, as well as as, uh, Trump's attacking the beauty pageant contestant who, you know, he derided as fat, uh, and, and other women, and then other women coming out. And honestly, I'm seeing one headline, one headline after another where I, either I wrote or I'm posting someone else's writing about how disqualifying this is and how energized women are and outraged women are and how this is like, I mean, this is all ahead of the Comey uh, press conference or, excuse me, letter uh, which I think really turned the tide. When I get that Google uh, Facebook memory, I'll be really sad. Um, but 
it's it's really uh, heartbreaking to see the optimism that we all had, especially because of those revelations. And instead, 53% of white women voted for the Groper-in-Chief. I saw a CNN roundtable after the Access Hollywood tape came out with Republican women who were still going to vote for Trump, and their argument was very simple. They said, that's what men are like, period. It was sort of like saying there's no point in complaining about bad weather. And, of course, the question we're asking now is, is that attitude changing now with this Harvey Weinstein Me Too moment? I think it is because I think people are going deeper into how it affects us in the workplace. That focused on Trump as an asshole, certainly as a sexual predator, but it didn't really, you know, the women, I'm not put. I'm, I, this is no condescension to the women who, uh, who he harassed, but th- there's just in this new Me Too moment, a lot more attention to the way that this affects working class women. My friend, uh, the great writer E.J. E. Graff, has written a great piece for Vice looking at the sexual harassment that working women face. So, you know, I think in a funny way, it got, when we talk about the white working class uh, and why they went so overwhelmingly for Trump and why women did, I think working class women have kind of taken it for granted that they're going to be a waitress and they're going to be grabbed, that uh, they're going to be a clerk and they're going to be grabbed, they're going to be propositioned, there's going to be a meeting in in an office and they're alone with the boss. And we don't do much about that. We don't care much about that. But EJ examines, you know, the the cost to working class women of all races of this kind of behavior and why we need to pay attention to it there, as well as, you know, when it's actresses or models that Trump or Weinstein might be molesting. Well, it seems like it is the the actresses and and models and celebrities who have made this front page uh, news in the last few days. I wonder what you think about Sean Hannity arguing on Fox News, quote, liberals love to be so sanctimonious, holier than thou, but they're really hypocrites, close quote. This is, of course, because Harvey Weinstein is a big Democratic donor. Do you have a response to Sean Hannity? Yeah, I think he should shut up because he's sitting in the house that Roger Ailes built uh, and built it heavily on the backs of women that he harassed and molested and, you know, in some cases came up to the line of raped for years and years. That that kind of behavior created Sean Hannity. I'm not saying Sean. I never I haven't heard reports of Sean, but Sean Hannity's paycheck was signed by a man who was engaging in the same horrible behavior to some of his peers. And, and Hannity had to know about it. It just wasn't, it was an open secret at Fox. So the idea that he or Tucker Carlson, who is sitting in the chair, formerly occupied by Megyn Kelly, their star, who ails also sexually harassed, unbelievably. Weinstein seems to have had a thing, and mo- this happens a lot, for younger women, beautiful but kind of powerless starting out, Ailes had, you know, the cojones to harass some of his top talent, Kelly and, and uh, Gretchen Carlson. 
which is, you know, which is unique, which is really brassy, which is really, you know, disgusting. Uh, it's all disgusting. But, you know, Tucker Carlson is sitting there, you know, making the same comments when he has a job held by a woman who was partially driven out by, se- by sexual abuse. Like, I don't know how they sleep at night, but we say that a lot. And there's one other thing I would add to that. Trump went on TV after the accusations against Roger Ailes and said, Roger Ailes is a good guy. Nobody in Hollywood is saying that about Harvey Weinstein. No, that's an excellent point. Nobody but nobody. To just one last point on Me Too, I think it really is making a lot of men examine their own complicity. You know, I examined mine. Typical woman is the first to examine her her <laughs> complicity. Yes. But, you know, I'm starting to see more writing by men who are admitting uh, that, that they basically knew. You know, they didn't know about rape. Nobody, you know, I, I don't think anybody stands by with an allegation of rape. But they knew about the groping and, and you know, they knew about a lot of it. And, and so, you know, I think they're realizing that they have to do more to speak up when these things become known to them rather than just either chuckle or, or cringe and just think, oh, God, what a dog. I wouldn't leave my daughter with him. But then, you know, get in their expensive car and drive into the Hollywood Hills. Joan Walsh, she wrote about Me Too for the Nation. Her piece there is titled, What Would Women Be Doing If We Weren't Constantly Dealing with Male Abuse? Joan, thanks for a great piece, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Donald Trump may be narcissistic, ignorant, impulsive, and dangerous, but we are told his three top generals are working hard to control his actions and limit the damage he could do. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent, and all three of the generals are part of his new book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. John Nichols, welcome back. It is a pleasure to be with you, sir. Well, the former generals who we are told are keeping Trump from doing terrible things are, of course, his chief of staff, former Marine Corps General John Kelly, his defense secretary, former Marine Corps General James Mattis, and his national security advisor, former Army Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. We've been told they have a pact to ensure that one of them is always in the country to watch over Trump in case he, quote, goes off the deep end. And we've been told they've been doing good things, especially on foreign policy. They prevented Trump from scrapping the Iran nuclear deal. And most important, they don't want a nuclear war with North Korea. Your book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, has chapters on each of them. Let's start with Defense Secretary James Mattis. He was in the news last week after Trump tweeted about war with North Korea, after Trump tweeted that diplomacy was, quote, a waste of time. Mattis said the American effort in North Korea is, quote, diplomatically led. And after Trump tweeted that, quote, only one thing will work, scaring everybody, Mattis said that the United States is focusing on an economic sanction buttressed effort to try to turn North Korea off this path. Tell us about Defense Secretary James Mattis. 
Well, Mattis is a fascinating figure. I mean, he is he is kind of one of these uh, folks who people in the media love. They they love the idea of a warrior intellectual, a guy who travels to the battlefield with a you know backpack full of books and and you know brings great intellect and and nuance to the process. And and there is some truth to the fact that he reads widely and and can discourse relatively widely, but but don't lose sight of the reason that Trump hired him, and it, it wasn't because of that. It was because of a nickname, um, Mad Dog, mm. and 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 that's, and he didn't get the nickname Mad Dog uh, for you know drawing up you know nuanced reading lists. Um, no, he's, he, the fact of the matter is, this is a guy who is a major militarist. Uh, he is a very, very big enthusiast uh, for uh, going into military endeavors with uh, a fully stocked arsenal and uh, being incredibly aggressive in, in pursuing those endeavors. Now, the fact that he brings a little bit of caution to a uh, proposal to literally create a nuclear war <laughs> on the Korean Peninsula, which would uh, immediately destabilize China, Japan, and, and every place else, and, and probably very possibly bring the, the planet to the brink of destruction. Um, you know, I mean, that's, I guess that's good. I'm certainly you know, glad that, that he's there, but I'm not sure that that makes him the perfect player in, in this circumstance. And, and one of the things that I think is important to understand is that while Mattis uh, can come off as more reasonable, in, in some of his statements and, and may, in fact, I, I think it's fair to say, is probably uh, urging the president to dial some things down. He is also presiding over a, a massive transfer of power in, in the uh, federal government and, and in particularly our foreign policy sector. Uh, he does talk about a diplomacy-led uh, initiative on the Korean Peninsula. But what he doesn't say is that increasingly that diplomacy is led by him, i.e. that he is talking to other military people and other uh, government folks around the world, people that he has come to know over many, many years, and that Rex Tillerson is strikingly marginalized in all this. Uh, the State Department is, is a mess at this point. It hasn't filled key positions. Uh, whole sectors of the State Department are weak to the point of dysfunctional at this point. There's, there's a lot of chaos there. And, and Tillerson has accepted a dialing down of the State Department budget, a diminishing of uh, its role and its responsibility. And so Mattis has an immense amount of power, more power probably than, than anybody at the Pentagon, uh, maybe in its history. Uh, and that can make some people feel comfortable because at this point he is not using that power to say, yeah, let's, let's go immediately to war. But I would be very, very cautious about, uh, you know, putting an immense amount of stock in the notion that this guy is always going to be the backstop or always going to be the, the person saying no. Uh, I think there's very little evidence of that. The most powerful and best known of Trump's generals is his chief of staff, the former Marine Corps General 
John Kelly, we're told he's responsible for the firing of some of the most dangerous people in the Trump White House, starting with Steve Bannon and his associate Sebastian Gorka. We're told that General Kelly limits Trump's access to online right-wing news like Breitbart and controls who gets to see him. And a couple of days ago, after Trump tweeted about cutting off hurricane disaster relief for Puerto Rico, General Kelly said, quote, our country will stand with those American citizens in Puerto Rico until the job is done, close quote. That's, of course, the opposite of what Trump said. What's your assessment of Trump's chief of staff, John Kelly? Well, I, I dare say I'm not in the camp that says John Kelly has really made everything great out at the White House. If you look at the period since John Kelly uh, came in came into position of power there, where he was supposedly the definitional figure. What have we had happen during that, that period? Charlottesville, the chaotic and, and deeply troubling, I would say, disqualifying presidential response to, you know, one of the major sort of meltdowns on issues of race and fascism and Nazism in, in recent American history. Um, you know, Kelly was in charge there. And, and where, was the, where was the order? Where was the, the functionality there? Um, you know, look at, at, uh, this mess with North Korea, uh, Kelly's been in charge. Uh, I haven't seen the, the president stabilize or become a more functional player in this regard. Look at the total unmitigated chaos as regards Trump's agenda, uh, with Congress. I mean, <laughs> despite his ridiculous recent press conference with Mitch McConnell, I mean, things are, things are strikingly out of control. Look at, um, the uh, president's speech to the United Nations. You know, Kelly was in charge, but who wrote that speech, or who at least drafted key parts of it? Stephen Miller, uh, an acolyte of Steve Bannon. Uh, and, and with all due respect, I don't think Bannon was fired. I think Bannon is a strategist who chose uh, to step out of an inside position and move to an outside position from which to continue the exact same mission. And, and when the president held his recent press conference outside the, the White House, or at least the press availability he did with McConnell, he refer, referred to Bannon as a friend and offered clear indications that he is consulting with Bannon about many of the things Bannon's doing. And so, uh, boy, if John Kelly has stabilized things or has you know, really put things on the right track, um, you know, where was it with the, the chaotic and, and deeply troubling, uh, speech that, that Trump gave about Iran? Is it with the, the constant kind of d dialing up of tensions with North Korea? Is it the absolute failure of the white house to respond to Charlottesville? Is it the inability of the white house to, to get a coherent legislative agenda together? No, John Kelly is a mess of a chief of staff. I would argue that uh, the combination of Reince, Reince Priebus and Steve Bannon, as messy as that was, actually created a more stable and focused White House than what we have today. There's a cult of General Kelly that, that wants to fantasize that he's keeping us safe or keeping, us, keeping things stable and dialing down the crazy. I see no evidence whatsoever of that. And... What do you conclude about the 
National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster. He has a Ph.D. in military history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He wrote a best-selling book in 1997 titled Dereliction of Duty, Johnson McNamara, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the Lies that Led to Vietnam. The New York Times called that book, quote, comprehensive and balanced, close quote. That sounds great. Yeah, it does sound great until you read the book. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, remember, a New York Times review is done by an individual. It's not done, you know, it's not the New York necessarily the whole of the New York Times in the yes. current context Excellent speaking about point. it. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, in doing the book, I looked a lot at McMaster. Matt, McMaster's a fascinating figure. He, he is, uh, like Mattis, a, uh, a intellectual general. There's no, quality, no question of that. But it's sort of like uh, Trump is a billionaire populist. Mm. There's no question of that either. But, you know, when, all, when it all comes down, uh, Trump is more billionaire than populist. Mm-hmm. And General McMaster is more general than intellectual. Okay. Uh, and this is a big deal to understand with him. Uh, his book basically argues that Vietnam was we got into that war, and then the generals were too deferent. To civilian control. They were too deferent to concerns about domestic policy and domestic politics, and, and frankly, the demands of the people as regards that war. They didn't go for you know, like a maximum win and arguing for strategies to absolutely prevail. Now, there are many people that believe that. You know, I understand that. Uh, there are even some reasonable people who believe, you know, if you're in that, you know, that, you know, that this, is, this is the work of generals. This is what generals do. Uh, they should they should guide things, but I, I happen to be on the side of the founders of the American experiment, which is that we have civilian control of the military, and the military is supposed to be deferent to uh, those civilians rather than kind of calling the shots. And I think that that's the key to all of these generals. When we look at these these three folks, the problem that we come to is something that Senator Kirsten Gillibrand identified when she voted against. Uh, the Mattis nomination in particular, uh, and really was the, the principal opposition there. You know, to get Mattis into that position, we had to gut out long-term policies that we've had in place as regards generals stepping into leadership positions in the Pentagon. They changed the rules to let Mattis step in there. Um, and part of that is because Trump is so obsessed with generals. Um, we are, we have a a bad situation now because Trump has put generals into all sorts of positions of power. And now we're saying, well, yeah, but these are reasonable generals. These are, you know, better than some other generals. That may be true, but the core principle that we should have civilian control of the military and that we should also have a balance as regards the military, i.e. that the military industrial complex should be checked and balanced by a set of civilian priorities, which, which we value and which we advance, um, and which, frankly, are, are part of what we defend. John Nichols, he wrote about Trump's generals in his new book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, A Field Guide to the Most Dangerous People in America. John, thanks so much for talking with us today. It's a great pleasure to have this conversation.
Now it's time to talk about the nation's special and long-awaited food issue, just published this week. For that, we turn to one of the nation's editors, Zoe Carpenter. She's also associate Washington editor of the magazine. Zoe, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, the food issue of the nation, I guess it's not going to be about the hottest new restaurants or the latest foodie trends. Uh, Listeners might guess that the food writers at The Nation think the most depressing thing about Donald Trump is how he orders his steak. Well done. But actually, that was a headline in The Washington Post, not at The Nation. What is The Nation's food issue about? Well, the theme of this special issue is the future of food. And the reason we chose that is because it's a really uncertain time at almost every link in our food supply chain. And what I mean by that is that we're at uh, critical points where in agriculture, in food service, when it comes to labor, in technology, there are all these changes, there are all these questions, and there are real challenges uh, that are confronting our food system. And so we thought it was a good time to take stock of some of those changes and, and challenges and look ahead and ask what the future of food might look like um, in a couple of ways. Well, let's talk about some of the key pieces. One of the most important is headlined, Did Monsanto Ignore Evidence Linking Its Weed Killer to Cancer? This could be the company's big tobacco moment. Uh, Tell us about the Monsanto piece. Sure. That's a piece by Renee Ebersole that we published in partnership with the Food and Environment Reporting Network. And this piece looks at a very significant court case, which is centralized in California, which is accusing Monsanto of having known that its weed killer Roundup caused or could cause cancer, but advertising it as safe. And, you know, some background on on Monsanto and on Roundup is that the active ingredient in Roundup, glyphosate, is the most popular herbicide in the world. And so hundreds of millions of pounds of this herbicide are are sprayed every year um, on cropland, on personal gardens and lawns. And it really has been the key to Monsanto's growth as a biotech company because Monsanto, not only does it have this very powerful weed killer but it has also been able to genetically engineer crops to be resistant to glyphosate, um, the so-called Roundup-ready seeds. Uh, and, and so much of our domestically produced corn and soy and other commodity crops are now engineered to be resistant to this herbicide so that farmers can spray huge amounts of it all over farmland. So it's, it's really everywhere. They've detected glyphosate residue in all sorts of food, from Cheerios to fruits and vegetables. Yeah. And there's been a big debate for many years about the product's safety. And that debate came to a head uh, recently when an international committee, which is connected to the World Health Organization, ruled that glyphosate is a probable human carcinogen. And uh, Monsanto just disagrees with that ruling and says that it uh, contradicts previous rulings by authorities like the Environmental Protection Agency in the U.S., But it did open the door for this uh, lawsuit and and many other lawsuits claiming that farmers and other people developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma from using Roundup. Of course, we don't expect Trump's EPA to do anything about this. But if I remember the big tobacco settlement correctly, this was the work of the state attorney generals, not so much of the uh, national EPA. 
So these cases are being brought by private individuals, um, and the EPA has actually maintained that glyphosate is not harmful. They're still in the middle of another review of the safety. And part of what this article uncovers and discusses is that Monsanto has had a very close relationship with some of the regulators at the EPA who are evaluating the chemical safety. And so that raises questions about the integrity of their review. And then there's a very different kind of story in the nation's new food issue, how food brought an unlikely group of Syrian refugees together, stuck in Greece, families found comfort in culinary rituals. This one is a report from a refugee camp in an abandoned Greek Air Force base on a mountain north of Athens. Tell us about this piece. Yeah, this is a really lovely little portrait of a community in this um, refugee camp. Uh, reported by Dahlia Mortada, and it has some beautiful photographs by a photographer named Sima Diab. And what they found at Ritsona, the refugee camp, is that although families were living in very difficult conditions, um, in very Spartan conditions, there was a group of families that had uh, basically been clustered together around an alley. And they were families that never would have interacted in Syria, or they never would have been close in Syria because of Uh, different geographic histories, but also because their families came from very different socioeconomic, religious, ethnic backgrounds. And then in this camp, after not being very interested in meeting one another or not very interested in interacting with one another, they started to form a bond based around an attempt to make the food that they missed from their home communities in Syria. And specifically, uh, three of the women were pregnant at the same time, and one of them had a pregnancy craving for a particular dish that was a very laborious dish to make. And so the two other women understood how how severe and intense her longing for this food was, and they teamed up to try to make it for her, which was quite a gesture of of love um, in a very difficult time. And since then, the families sort of created this communal kitchen and trying to find ingredients and recreate recipes from home. And the bigger picture of this article is the way in which the diaspora and and the conflict in Syria has changed Syrian cuisine and how it's still changing the cuisine. Uh, For example, it's difficult to get many of the ingredients in Greece or they're just simply too expensive to recreate the traditional recipes. And so people are adapting them for the times. Men who are traveling are trying to figure out how to cook on their own and they're getting recipes from their mothers or their sisters over WhatsApp. So the piece is just a really interesting portrait of uh, what's happening with Syrian cuisine now that families are being uh, flung all over the globe. And this piece includes a recipe, something we don't see in the nation very uh, often. I don't think I've ever seen it before. But it's not the same kind of recipe that you see in the New York Times uh, food section. Just say a few words about the the recipe. Yeah, the recipe is for feta, which is a, a dish that is apparently served for Friday brunch with family. And it's one of the first dishes that the reporter who wrote the story was served by the families. And so it's made with crispy pita bread and warm chickpeas and um, several other ingredients, uh, ghee, hot ghee, pine nuts, um, and a yogurt sauce, yogurt tahini sauce. Um, And there are some adaptations that the writer uh, talks about that the families have had to make. For example, instead of deep frying the pita bread, um, they might bake it because oil for deep frying is very expensive. Um, But the dish is is on the website and uh, it's delicious. So I strongly encourage the listeners to go find it and, and cook it themselves. 
refugee food with some of replacements for things that are hard to get in refugee camps in Greece, but uh, we recommend the recipe anyway. I want to ask you about one more article, a strange uh, story I did not know anything about, how bans on cow slaughter in India have become a pretext for violence against the country's Muslim minority. This is kind of the opposite story from the the one about uh, Syrian refugees in Greece. Yes, in the sense that the Syrian refugee story is about food bringing people together. And in this other story written by Amitava Kumar, um, you see food being used as a pretext for for division and for conflict. What really interests me about the uh, beef story is it's one of many examples um, that I noticed in doing research for this issue where our political anxieties and these debates about social issues spill over into into our food, into our culinary conversations, um, into the way that food is served. In Europe, for example, in France and Italy, there's been a good bit of debate about um, proposed bans on street food, which is seen as a thinly veiled attempt to shut down businesses that are largely run by migrants from the Middle East and North Africa. Um, and then, of course, in the U.S., there's this infamous example of uh, Donald Trump using a taco bowl to um, try to communicate his love for Hispanics. Yeah. Meanwhile, since then, his policies um, on immigration have really impacted the people who pick and, and cook and serve our food. So in the case of the story in India, you see um, the political party of Narendra Modi, the, the prime minister, um, that party is the BJP, which is a right-wing nationalist Hindu party, is using uh, this long-standing uh, taboo against eating beef as a way to essentially verbally attack the Muslim minority uh, with the idea that killing cows is is uh, taboo. Um, and that has emboldened these groups of, of vigilantes essentially to come after what largely are poor minority uh, members of, of the Indian nation, um, accusing them of eating beef, in many cases with very, very scant evidence. Finally, the big question, how do we get to a more equitable and sustainable food system? You wrote part of that section. What kind of answers did your contributors come up with? So we asked our contributors to respond in pretty specific ways. So some of the ideas um, include thinking more critically about the next generation of gene editing technology that's starting to come online and looking very seriously at who controls that technology um, and what we're using it for. Another thing that our contributors talked about is making sure that we are supporting young people who want to get into farming. We have a serious uh, problem with farmers getting older and there not being enough people to to take their place. There are also serious issues with consolidation in the industry. And many of the people that, that I talked to in preparing for this issue talked about those growing oligopolies as being something that's very difficult for for farmers and for consumers. It limits choice, makes things more expensive, and it has real concerns for, for public health. So those are just a few of the ideas. Then, of course, there's looking at how the food system supports the workers who work in that system. You may be buying a, a beautiful tomato, a beautiful organic tomato, um, but what's happening to the people who pick that tomato or who is serving your food in restaurants, what kind of support are they able to offer their families based upon the wages that they're earning? One more thing. I open by saying the nation's special food issue is not about the latest foodie trends, but I see there is a page 
of recipes for some cocktails. I was a little surprised. What what are the new cocktails that the nation has come up with? Well, you know, these are these are dark times. These are difficult times. And and sometimes when reading the news, it is best to do so with a stiff drink, okay. um, particularly these days. And so we we asked three of our favorite booze experts to come up with some recipes for us. They have very uh, evocative titles, I have to say. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so we have a drink called Russian Interference. That is a, a vodka-based drink, as you can imagine. And we have another variation of a Negroni called the Kofivi Negroni. And of course, some people may remember that Kofivi was an, uh, an infamous typo made by our new commander-in-chief. Uh, and then finally, there's a drink called the Knee Bend, which is an adaptation of an old German drink, approximately called the Knee Bend. Um, and this drink refers to uh, the recent NFL protests. Well, I hope there was a taste testing of these cocktails to make sure that America's oldest weekly was not making a mistake here. You are, you know, there was a taste test, and I can assert that they are all delicious and all worth your time. Zoe Carpenter, she was one of the editors of and contributors to the nation's special issue, The Future of Food setting the table for the next generation. It's out now. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you so much for having me. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, Dave talks about what happens when bosses collude to bar you from your job in light of the recent news about Colin Kaepernick's NFL lawsuit. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with additional production help from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.